Very good. Well, let's pray uh, so we can get started. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we come before you now, and we're so grateful for the glorious things of which we sang and the glorious things of which we read in your word. And what sticks out to me today in worship is thy power to save. Lord, an Arminian cannot sing that because it doesn't say the power to make us savable. It says the power to save, to lift from us the great burden of the law that we cannot lift in ourselves. That is what we're looking at here in the book of Hebrews today. The sovereign work of the Son, the work of the perfected eternal Son of God as He comes not just to die on a tree, but to live a life of perfect righteousness on our behalf. Father, we pray that you would exalt your son now, that you would lift him up, Lord, in our midst, that you would magnify your son Jesus to us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I was thinking about that time in worship just now, I was thinking about when you walked in here today, did you have that sense of immense weight on your shoulders? Did you feel burdened? Did you feel as if you had a hand that was pushing down on you, that you were carrying an unbearable load as you walked in here today? And you should say, no, I didn't walk in here with an unbearable load on my shoulders. Unless, of course, you're thinking of some trial that you went through this week. But the reality is, is that Apart from Christ, we'd have all walked in here today with unbearable demands placed upon us, unbearable, things that we simply cannot do in and of ourselves. And as a matter of fact, the whole Bible is a book of demands. From the very beginning, God begins His relationship with mankind by setting out certain demands, right? And it's, God gives us this, this Sunday school level picture, right? The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. You talk to people on the street about Adam and Eve, and what do they say? Oh, Adam and Eve, you mean like the fairy tale, right? It's a, it's a Sunday school prop-up book, right? But really, what God is doing there is He's giving us a picture that from the very beginning, God places certain demands upon our lives, Adam and Eve were given a demand. They were given privileges, too. Of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat of it. Obedience was expected of them. And when you look throughout the rest of the Scripture, what do you have? You have a, if you would, you have a, a new Edenic day every day. You have demands that are placed on Abraham, demands that are placed on Israel, demands that are placed on Moses, demands that are placed on the prophets, demands that are placed on the people of God in the wilderness. You have all of these demands that God is demanding of us. And yet you and I walked in here today not overwhelmed by it. That is a miracle. And the miracle is in what we're looking at today in Jesus Christ. Think about this demand. Leviticus 11:45, "I am the Lord 
who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Can you just see the children of Israel trembling under that? Trembling, as it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, under the the weight of of a fiery mountain with lightning and flashing and thundering, right? As the holy God of Israel is setting out His holy demands, so much so that Hebrews says they begged the Lord to stop. Stop. We can't handle the demands of the terrifying law that you're giving us today. It's too much. And so what does Israel do? Oh, in, a, in an act of, I think, sincere love to God and covenant faithfulness, they say in the book of Judges, they say, uh, or in the book of Joshua, they say, all these things we're going to do. <laughs> they say in Exodus, right, we will fulfill all of these things that God has asked us to do today. And it doesn't take but a couple chapters and the whole thing just falls apart. They cannot do it. Brothers and sisters, the standard in the New Testament is not any lower. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, as Peter is addressing the new covenant believer, quotes Leviticus 11. And he tells us, be holy, for I am holy. Same standard, same requirement, same demand that is given to them was given to us But the only reason that we do not fall under the weight of those demands is because we have one who kept the demands of the law perfectly. What we're looking at here in this passage is the perfections of the Son of God. And there are three, in fact. There are three that are given to us. Number one, the perfection of His righteousness. Number two, the perfection of His atonement. And number three, the perfection of His ministry. That's what I want to look at with you. So, look at the first one. The perfection or the perfect righteousness, we could say, of Jesus Christ. Read again verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted to the heavens. Folks, none of us can qualify for that. None of us. You can't insert your name into this verse. None of us are holy The word holy means free from any moral pollution whatsoever. Nothing at all. There's no, you know, if if, if they did a spiritual CAT scan on our body, an MRI, right? There, it wouldn't take long for, let's say, the Lord to do that to us and say, oh, no, there's one right here. (laughs) Sorry. You got one, you got a couple, well, just one, right? You're like, one, just one? We are shot through with edemic corruption. Every aspect of our being is corrupt because of the edemic sin. Our mind, our body, our soul, our spirit, our emotions, our motives, everything is shot through with edemic guilt and with edemic pollution. But oh, look at Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted to the heavens, we got to understand this progression because it is absolutely marvelous. It is marvelous. This is really, um, verse 26 here, 
by the commentaries has really been called the concluding rhapsody, the crescendo of the priesthood of Jesus as he's getting ready to move on, talking more specifically about the covenant Then he's finishing up the priesthood. So this is bringing everything to a climax. What kind of priest do we have? This is the kind of priest that we have. The author is groping to try to, to, try to uh, uh, set it out in front of us to see. He is holy. He is innocent. He is blameless. He is undefiled. He's separate from sinners. All of these things. That's why he says earlier that we have Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1 the high priest of our confession. He's confessing that confession right here. In chapter 8, verse 1, you could just look over, he picks up this very train of thought that we have this eternal, enthroned, exalted, perfected high priest. When he says, now the main point of what has been said, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. We have a holy priest representing a very unholy people. That's what we're seeing. Just as in these verses, the heaven and earth dualism continues here. We go from the earth We go from his incarnation into heaven where he is exalted. And that is a consecutive theme that you find throughout the book of Hebrews always over and over. The author of Hebrews is taking us into heaven, back to earth, into heaven, back to earth, into heaven, back to earth. That's the way that Hebrews works. That's the way that he works. But why is he holy like this? And why is it important for him to point this out? He points this out because it shows us, number one, The weakness of the Old Testament, as he's already argued, and he's going to bring it up again. And then the superior strength of Jesus, the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament required so that Jesus keeps the law for us. He does it for us. Um, and, and, And because he does it for us, as John Owen points out, he did it, the, 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 the law is fulfilled in us. Because it's not enough for Jesus to do it for us, some abstract idea. There it is out there somewhere in the cosmic universe. Jesus did it for us. But what about us, right? Well, Paul makes clear in the book of Romans, we have fulfilled the law by faith, by faith in him, so that when God sees us, remarkably, I know this is hard to really uh, 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 to, to, to wrap your mind around, it's hard to really live in this reality that God sees us as law fulfillers. He sees us as if when we walked into this building this morning, He sees us as if we fulfilled the law. Isn't that remarkable? As if we did all these things that we cannot do. He doesn't just fulfill it for us, but fulfilling it for us means it's fulfilled in us. It's really remarkable. John Owen, as I stated in his book, The Glory of Christ, which if you don't have, you need to pick it up. The Glory of Christ by John Owen. I think it's especially important and meaningful. I've read it a couple times. It's, it's important and meaningful because this is the book John Owen wrote right before he died. So right before he died, this is what's on John Owen's mind. Well, first he wrote a seven-volume commentary on the book of Hebrews. And after he finished that, he said, now I can die. <laughs> 
And then he wrote a little book called The Glory of Christ, and he died. Isn't that marvelous? How are you going to go out? Hopefully, it's meditating on the glory of Christ. I was sitting there during worship just a minute ago. Um, I've been studying the Psalms. For some reason, I've just been really drawn to the Psalms, so watch out. Here we go, right? <laughs> Be expecting some sort of psalmist, psalmist theology coming out somewhere, Sunday school or something. But anyway, I've been studying the Psalms feverishly for, for a reason, but, uh, and, and, and then I just thought randomly, I'm going to go through this section in the Psalms where it's, it, it, it's, it's really going to be talking about um, what the psalmist is communicating to the world. Uh, it's called communicative psalms, where the psalmist is declaring things to the nations. And I just pick up on Psalm 45, you know, and, and I don't remember what's in every one of these psalms uh, generally, but I pick it up and all of a sudden I start seeing Psalm 45, what's, what's on uh, the mind of the author? Well, he's talking about the loveliness of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the beauty of his bride. Where is he getting all that language? He's getting it from the Song of Solomon. So sorry for folks that don't want to connect Christ and the church to the Song of Solomon. Sorry, the psalmist did, okay? But as I saw that, I thought, wow, there it is, the glories of Christ. The psalmist is meditating on the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the King. That's what John Owen uh, is meditating on when he talks about Christ fulfilling the law for us so that it would be fulfilled in us. Listen to what he said. I quote him at length here, so listen carefully, because this is John Owen, and it's, uh, it's uh, you thought I was difficult to follow. John Owen's even more difficult, so try to listen in here. He said, Jesus is glorious in that the law of God in its perceptive part, in other words, what it prescribes to us, or as the obedience that it requires was perfectly fulfilled and accomplished. And, he says, that it should be so was absolutely necessary from the wisdom and holiness and righteousness of him by whom it was given. God required this in his wisdom. For what could be more remote from those divine perfections than to give a law which never was to be fulfilled in them unto whom it was given? In other words, what could be the furthest thing from God's mind than that, than that God prescribes all these amazing things in the law, but it goes unfulfilled in us, in us? Didn't that ever, doesn't that ever cross your mind? All the stuff that God required, and then Christ comes along, He does it, but then what about them? So it was for them, but then they never fulfilled it? He says, no, no, no. He says, it was... It was he says, who were to have the advantages of it. In other words, because the law also promises the advantages that it, that it contains, like eternal like life, uh, like life and righteousness, if we could keep it. But we cannot, not in and of, our, of ourselves. He says, this could not be done by us, but through the obedience of Christ, by virtue of this, he and his mystical conjunction with the church, the law was so fulfilled in us by being fulfilled for us, as that the glory of God in the giving of it and the annexing of the eternal rewards unto it is exceedingly exalted. And he points to Romans chapter 8 to see the fulfillment. When he says the annexing re rewards, he's saying this is the reward of fulfilling the, the law of God. You want a picture of that? Romans chapter 8. No condemnation, right? For those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the reward. And he says this. He says, 
This is that glory of Christ whereof, listen now, real practical now. He goes from real difficult to real practical. And now he says, this is that glory of Christ whereof one view by faith will scatter all fear, answer all objections, give relief against all despondencies of the poor and tempted doubting souls. It is an anchor, he says, to all believers which they can cast within the veil to hold them firm and steadfast in all trials, storms, temptations in life, and death. Why do I quote John Owen at length? Because as we're looking at the perfections of Christ, what I want you to see is that we have this hope that he speaks of. And what is the hope? The hope that goes beyond the veil. The hope is that Jesus kept the law for us and we, therefore, keep the law in him. You fulfilled God's more requirements in Christ by your conjunction to Christ, by your union with Christ. God sees you as a perfect, obedient son and daughter. I know it's too much. I know, it's, I know you're reflecting right now on what you did this week. And you're like, well, well, I'm not very obedient. I wasn't very obedient there. I wasn't very obedient there. Let alone the law of God. Isn't that the gospel? The gospel is that the burden is gone. What does John say in 1 John? The commandments of the Lord are no longer a burden. (laughs) That is a miracle that your conscience can be alleviated by the fact that in some way you are a law keeper. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, those who have faith in Jesus For those who have faith in Jesus, this is the end of the law. In other words, we've reached the purpose that the law had. And that's all because of our union with Christ. The Apostle Paul, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul saw this very thing. He worded it in a different way, but this is where John Owen, this is where all the Puritans, this is where all theologians get it from, is passages like this. Where Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verse 7, he is keenly aware of the futility of trying to keep the law on your own. Remember how chapter 3 starts out? Paul lists all his credentials, right? He's a Pharisee, a Hebrew, a Jew. I mean, uh, you know, he was blameless as far as the law, as far as he was concerned. He tried doing all this law keeping, and it did not give him the righteousness that he pursued. And then in verse 7, this is what It means, it means that for Paul, Christ is all. It is everything. And that's what he says. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and that I may be found in him, right? Found keeping the law in him. He says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That is the supremacy of our priest right there. He gives us his righteousness. He keeps the law for us so that the law can be kept in us. How does he do this? He does this because he is morally perfect. That's why. 
Matter of fact, this text is going to give us six things that describe the moral perfections of Jesus. Five of them are in verse 26. One of them is in verse 27. Verse 27 there, it speaks about his once-for-all sacrifice. But the very first thing is that essential quality of holiness, that he is holy. Brothers and sisters, what is demanded of us is innate in Jesus. What God requires of us in holiness is natural to him. It is who he is, right? What we are called to be is what Jesus is innately. By virtue of his being, he is holy. And what of this word holy? Well, it's interesting because the word that's used here is not the common word that you may expect, which is hagios. It's not hagios. He uses a different word. He uses hasias. Big difference. Why? Because one of the things that I think the author is trying to stress here is he's pointing us back to the Septuagint. Because in the Septuagint, the word hasias is used of those who were covenantly faithful to Yahweh. They kept covenant with God by keeping themselves unstained, by not breaking the covenant, by not disobeying the covenant. That's what Jesus is. That's why Jesus is called the Hasias, the Holy One, who will not rot in the grave because he's too holy. Jesus is too holy for God to just leave him to rot in the grave. You know this psalm, Psalm 16, verse 1, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Hasias to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And this psalm is quoted repeatedly in the book of Acts. The apostles loved to preach this psalm and say this is why Jesus rose from the dead because he's too holy to be eaten by worms and rot in the grave. In other words, death cannot hold him because he is perfectly morally righteous. And therefore, he is exalted. So not only is he holy and he has power over the grave, but it also says he is innocent. This Greek word is akakos, which the alpha privative, the ah, is compounded with the word that simply means evil, bad, uh, something, that is, uh, something that is of no good moral quality, kakas. That's, where, that's, that's what the word implies. And so the word akakas literally means no evil. When it says he is innocent, it means there is no evil in him. Isn't that amazing? So for us, it is, there is never a time, never a way, never a thought that can ever cross through our mind where we ever conceive of Jesus being morally evil, impure, sinful, in any way whatsoever. Stand up for the moral righteousness of Jesus Christ. Never allow anyone to tell you that Jesus is just a man or that he's just one of us or that, you know, we don't know much about Jesus. He was just a man, just a peasant in the ancient world. What they're saying is that he's just average. He's just one of us, but absolutely not. He is not just one of us. He is perfectly sinless in every way. What is verse 20, 26 teaching? 
Jesus is sinless. I want you to think about that, folks. If somebody asked you, where does the Bible teach that Jesus had no sin? Could you, could you show a person that? Could you go to the Bible and point out where the Bible says Jesus is sinless? I just gave away a big clue. It's this verse right here. <laughs> but there are others. There are, there are many others that stress the sinlessness of Jesus. But let's keep, demand, let's keep uh, working through this, this, these moral virtues of Jesus. The next word is kind of similar. Uh, it also is a compound word. The word is amiantos, which means undefiled, undefiled. Now, two things are meant here by undefiled. Number one, negatively, it means he has not been defiled by anything. Number two, and positively, it means he is pure, right? He is pure. That is important for us because we need to realize that what, when it says that he is not evil or innocent, when it says that he is undefiled, it's not saying that Jesus is in a neutral state. He didn't do anything wrong and that's it. No, it's positing uh, the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ by negating the possibility of unrighteousness. That's what the author is doing. But when it speaks of being undefiled, this is language of the ceremony. This is language of the rituals of Israel. This is language of the priesthood. For example, in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 17, we are told of the priests that there can be no priests of, of the generations of Aaron that had defects they could not minister unto the Lord if they had deformities. If they had deformities. Why? You ever read through those passages and wonder, why did God require people that were not deformed to minister in His sanctuary? Is God being mean to people that are deformed? Of course not. This is a typology of contrast, right? The Old Testament priests consisted of some men who had deformities, who were... Uh, who were disqualified from ministering in God's sanctuary. Christ, on the other hand, fulfills this in that he had no defects whatsoever. No defects in Jesus whatsoever. Far beyond any, any physical deformity, there was no spiritual deformity in him whatsoever. He was perfectly fitting to be our priest. When it says that it is fitting for us. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest. What he's saying is that we got the priest that we needed. This is the priest that we needed. This is the only one that will do. And so he brings in the other, the other virtue, namely that he is separated from sinners. He is separated from sinners. Now, you remember if you go back to chapter 2, for example, um, the author in chapter 2 went, went to great lengths to show that Jesus was one of us. Chapter 2, verse 10. It was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. You see that? We're all from one. In other words, we all come from, it is, this is all God's doing, the perfection of Jesus, the sanctifying of believers. We have all one source, and that is Jesus. That's why it says, He is not ashamed to call them what? Brethren. So there, man and Jesus are together, right? Jump down to verse 14. Therefore, 
Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And on and on and on and on and on it goes to show us that Jesus is mercifully condescendingly, meaning he comes down, one of us. And that is such a beautiful thing. It's such a marvelous thing to think Jesus is one of us. He knows what I went through this week, the frustration, the trial, the anguish, whatever it may be. He knows what I went through. And that is so sweet for us to meditate on, to grab a hold onto, to be comforted by that thought But now the author says this, he is separate from sinners. See that? So it is not just important for us to identify Jesus in union with his people, condescending to identify with us, to stand in solidarity with us, but there's also another component of Jesus that's just as crucial, and that is not his... uh, not his condescension with us, but his transcend, transcendental purity, his transcending, his, I can't say the word, his transcendence. There you go. There you go. You know, they tell you uh, when you study like books on preaching, make sure you speak easily, make, make it real plain, don't, don't use too big of words. Uh, I, didn't, I guess I didn't get those books very well. <laughs> yeah, because I want you to walk out of here knowing what, is this, what does transcendent mean? I want you to walk out here and think, what does the transcendent purity of Jesus mean? It means that Jesus is altogether other, that he is unlike us in many, many ways. And more than anything, he is unlike us in that he is holy. He is separated from sin. You cannot identify him with sinful people, right? Even though they tried. They tried accusing him of being what? Uh, we, we talked about uh, John the Baptist and said, look, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. And you said, he's got a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, he is a drunkard and a wine-bibber, right? And so they tried to identify him as a sinner. They, they tried to accuse him of sin, and Jesus would often challenge them, who of you accuses me of sin? See if it can stick according to the Levitical law, right? Bring your witnesses. And of course, uh, by the time he gets to the Sanhedrin, they trump up witnesses against him, right, with false charges because they have nothing to charge him with. That's exactly right, folks. We have no sin to charge Jesus with. As a result of that, here's the final virtue in verse 26. Because of that, because he is holy, morally perfect, flawless, right? A spiritual MRI cannot detect anything deviant in Jesus, right? He is innocent, meaning that there is no evil in him. He, he is without what is bad. He is also undefiled, which means he is ceremonially pure. He can be our high priest. He's always ready to minister. He never has to go and bathe in the laver and, he, and make sacrifices for himself and make sure that he is ready to engage in the ministry as a high priest. He is always ready because he is always pure. He's always pure. And he's separate from sinners, meaning even though he is 
with his people, even though he identifies with us, oh, he is altogether different than we are. He is altogether different than we are, right? So much so that people often got a glimpse of the truth when they asked, who is this man? Even the wind, even the sea obeys him. He's something special. There's something different about this man. And that is because he was, of course, the son of God. So, we are told that he passed through the heavens. And now here we are told he was exalted above the heavens. So in other words, he was rewarded, he was exalted, he came into the reward of his work precisely because he was the perfect, the perfect offering, the perfect sacrifice, he was perfectly righteous, and God could do nothing other than reward him. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Notice it says there, he was exalted above the heavens. So now we go from, he was, he is identified with us, and because of his transcendence, he is apart from us, and because of his moral perfection, he is above us, above us. You see that? He was exalted above the heavens. There's no other way that the author of Hebrews could stress it any more to say, Jesus is in a high place. Jesus has been put up there as high up as you can go, beyond the heavens. Beyond, as the hymn, the hymn says, beyond the starry sky. He pierces into the very throne room of God. Hebrews 1 verse 8 says, Of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. There is the moral perfection. Are you guys seeing that? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. It says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. That's the moral perfection of the high priest. And then it says, just like in chapter 7, therefore, God, your God, he has anointed you with, with the oil of gladness, watch this, above your companions. Same language, meaning when it says above your companions, he's referring to the exaltation that he, unlike his brethren, uniquely sits on the throne. So glorious. The perfection of his moral righteousness. You think about all the morality talk that we have going on today in the world, in the culture, on news, in media, people predicating about what is moral, what is not moral, the abortion debate, the marriage debate, all these debates. I think we need to listen to the one who is uniquely qualified to educate mankind on what is moral, since he himself is perfectly moral, perfectly righteous. But don't hold your breath, at least not with my eschatology. <laughs> Some of you, that'll creep up on you a little bit later. Okay, next, not just the moral perfection of Jesus Christ, but also the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is another reason what makes Jesus perfect. So that in verse 26, it shows us the significance of Jesus' moral perfections, uh, uh, of the one who is sacrificed, in other words. But verse 27 shows us the sufficiency of his perfect sacrifice. And first, 
we see this sufficiency in the fact that he has no need to make atonement for himself. You see that in verse 27? Who does not need daily. Now, latch on to that word daily. He does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, then for the sins of others, right? And then second, we bring the other half of this. The second half of this is the sufficiency of the atonement in this, that it is a once-for-all sacrifice, so that in the once-for-all sacrifice, he is offering up a perfect sacrifice, namely himself. He says, this he did, second word, once. You see that? So two priesthoods, one does it daily, the other one does it once, right? So when it says once for all, it does not mean once for everyone. You see what I'm saying? From the English, you may be tempted to conclude that. Okay, it says here, he was sacrificed, and then it says in verse 27, for he did this once for all. Oh, you mean he did it for all, right? Well, that's a misunderstanding of the Greek uh, and what that says. It's actually one word in the Greek. It's um, the, 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 the Greek word is ephipox, ephipox, which is a compound word, and it just essentially means once with the elimination of repeating the process. That's what it literally means. It means one time with no need to do it again. Oh, I, I love the, the, speci the specificity of, of God's Word. He makes it so clear for us if we just take time to dig it out a little bit, right? So wonderful, folks, for us to recognize that the once-for-all sacrifice and what that means for us, folks, is that the, the work is done and that as bad as your sin may get, as bad as times may get, as bad as you might condemn yourself for the, the, the lack of growth, for the lack of sanctification, which we should all be pursuing, remind yourself, there's no need to flog yourself. Time out. <laughs> Don't flog yourself. There's no need to go in the corner and get in a fetal position. Stand up. The once for all sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to forever remove your sin so that you can walk in newness of life. That is what the once for all sacrifice is all about. So we're moving from the ineffectiveness of the old covenant priesthood to the total effectiveness of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, because here uh, the author is going to really expound on this. He's going to enlarge on this. He's going to really comment uh, and, and broaden out, and we're going to get there, but obviously chapter 9 is a ways off. And so I just thought we'd go over this again. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, that's what all that did. That's a really awkward, uh, it's a very wooden translation. It's, uh, you're kind of like, what? Sanctify, cleanse, sanctify, what? That's what it accomplished. Yeah, verse 13 is just rough, uh, but verse 14 makes it clear. How much more, right? So we know something's being compared here. Verse 13, verse 14. How much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit 
offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, here's the parallel. On the one hand, you have a ineffective ministry that all that it did was cleanse the flesh, meaning it made, it prepared the flesh to the degree that you were able to enter into the court, enter into the, enter into the ceremonies, engage in the priesthood, engage in these things, but it did not necessarily go down beneath the subconscious level and into your soul. But the blood of Jesus does. The blood of Jesus, watch this, cleanses your conscience, right? That, sub, that, 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 that metaphysical part of you. The, part, the conscience is an amazing thing, isn't it? You ever thought about the conscience? I open and preach at UNT all the time, and I springboard off the conscience. Because every kid walking up and down that college, I don't care who they are, they have a conscience. They might have seared their conscience, but many of them. But they have a conscience. And the conscience, it's interesting. I can, I can go after the conscience, and they can't hide it from me. <laughs> they can walk away from me, but they can't hide their conscience from me. It's exposed. The conscience is interesting in that the conscience is part of us. Does anybody in here not have a conscience? Oh, gee, don't raise your hand. Anybody would testify, no, I have no conscience, right? Lock that person up right away. Throw away the key, right? Now, who in here would say they have control over the conscience? Can you tell your conscience, stop. Stop recording. Stop observing. Stop detecting. Stop giving me, you know, red flags. Stop sending warning signals. You cannot. God has so fashioned us with the conscience that as Romans chapter 2 goes on to say, the conscience, the light that God has given man, all men, we know just on the basis of conscience that our thoughts will either accuse us or excuse us on the basis of the things that we do. Amazing. Amazing. And that is where the blood of Jesus goes to cleanse us. For what? Two things. And there is a context here. From dead works to serve the living God. That is so glorious what he's saying there. What he's saying there, folks, is that when a person gets saved, what happens is you don't got to play church anymore. Maybe if I didn't grow up in church, but maybe you did, but maybe some of you resonate with me. I think, Pastor Chris, you would. You're, I know your background a little bit. I, had, I found out about you. But uh, I know your background a little bit. You grew up in the church, and you did all the right things, and you went to church, and you did what mom and dad expected of you, and you went to the youth groups, and you did all that stuff. But you know what? You were dead. Sorry, buddy, but you were. You were dead, right? And thousands, if not millions of young people today, they go to their youth group, they go to their church, and, and Christians and adults as well. They go to church, and they're full of dead works. And they don't serve the living God because there's no life. One of the scariest stories I've ever heard was by John Piper. He told the story of a 70-something-year-old deacon. I think he was 75 or something like that. And he had been in the church his entire life. And then finally God got a hold of him. 
God got a hold of him and he came up to receive prayer. And as he, as he walked up, as I don't fall here, as he walked up, all he kept saying was, I wasted it, I wasted it, I wasted it, I wasted my life. And it wasn't to the moment where he had true regeneration that he was finally delivered from false religion, dead religion, dead works, so that now he was able to serve the living God. There was life in the soul now. He wasn't just playing church politics anymore. There was actual life, love to God. And therefore, we can determine, have you been cleansed? Well, the question we might ask is, is your worship dead? Is your worship rote? Is it just routine? When we come through these doors, is it just, ho-hum, here we come again? Or is there life? And is there love? And is there real worship? Right? Because the Father is seeking such to worship Him in spirit and in truth. But this gets us to talk about our ministry to God, but more importantly, Jesus' ministry to us. That's the next thing, the perfect ministry of Jesus. Look at verse 28. It says here, For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So amazing what we've got going on here. It says the law, and then the law, as you can see, latch on to that word, the law, and then that law is to be contrasted with another word, namely the word oath. So there is law and there is oath, and these things are in antithetical parallel to each other. They're antithetical to one another because they accomplish different things, right? Look at, look at the accomplishment here. We go from law to weakness. We go from oath to perfection. Isn't that amazing? So, I think in order for us to understand the word of the oath, in order for us to kind of get this a bit better, we might need to identify with the psalmist who gave the oath. In his book on the Psalms, O. Palmer Robertson pointed out about this oath in Psalm 110, verse 4, verse 4, that David wrote that, context is crucial, David wrote that at a crucial point in time in his life. When did he write it? Probably around the time where, uh, of Absalom's rebellion, which meant David was on the run all the time. No access to the tabernacle. No access to the priesthood. No access to the throne at that time. And there is David musing about his messianic son who one day will unite the priesthood and the kingdom. You are the king of righteousness, right? Melchizedek is the king of Salem, king of righteousness. He is the king of peace, and he is the priest of God Most High. Exactly when David needed the priesthood most is when he had no access to the physical location of the tabernacle or later the temple under Solomon. And folks, the wonder of the Melchizedekian oath is that we are no longer limited by physical space. God always in the Old Testament created holy places for us to worship. 
He gave us holy space. And he made it very clear, this is where you worship, right here. you got to come here. you got to come to Jerusalem. <laughs> you got to go beyond Bethel. What happened at Bethel? The children of Israel got complacent. And they said, we don't want to go all the way to Jerusalem. We want to build an altar at Bethel, a bit closer to where we are. So we don't got to go all the way to Bethlehem, right? All the way or to Jerusalem, pardon and what happened was they gave in to idolatry. They compromised the holy space of God, and they paid, a, they, paid, they paid a pretty price for it. But what the psalmist is telling us in Psalm 110 is that God one day is going to so unite the office of priesthood and king that it doesn't matter where you're at, it doesn't matter what rock under the earth you're hiding, you can have perfect communion, perfect access into the throne of God if he is your high priest. Turn with me to Zechariah. In closing, we go to Zechariah because Zechariah chapter 6 agrees with David, agrees with this oath that is given uh, through David in the psalm, in Psalm 110. Uh, remarkable and interesting. David's messianic son who will be exalted above the heavens, who will sit at the right hand of God. He will rule from Zion. He will be God's enthroned priest king. That is what Psalm 110 is about. And then Zechariah chapter 6, he, he, he comes into the same vein of thought. Look at verse 12. Then they said to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch. For he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor to sit and rule on the throne. There's the king. Thus, he will be a priest. But he's going to be a special priest, a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. The Prince of Peace will unite the two offices of kingdom and priesthood, and it will all be in this man. Now, remarkably, remarkably, if you didn't already look up to verse 11, remarkably in Zechariah verse 11, this is spoken in a typological fashion of Joshua the high priest. What is Joshua's name in Hebrew? Yeshua. The one to whom the promise was made, this typology was uttered, bore the very name of the one in whom it would be fulfilled. Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing? Boy, Scripture always... Has it stopped amazing you? It, it doesn't stop amazing me. What amazes me is just how lazy I am. <laughs> what amazes me is how short my attention span is becoming now, getting into my, you know, whatever years. How old am I? I got to ask my wife. That's when you know you're getting old. I ask Trish how old I am all the time. I forget. I genuinely forget. I guess I could ask my mom too, but. Yeah, the only thing lacking in order to see wonderful things from God's law is buffeting our flesh, making it our slave, right? You will not, not study the Bible, right? You will not just engage in recreation, 
all the day long. You will make time for this book if you're going to make, if you're going to see wondrous things from this book. I recently wrote an article uh, on what does it mean to be a Berean, and one of the things that I specified there is, do you have, uh, do you have a specific place in your house where you study? Or is it just a random thing? Anything will do. Is there a desk? Is there a niche in the house somewhere where you go, where the mom goes and the kids know, oh, mom's in the corner, you know, uh, that means stay away. She's studying, you know, whatever. Uh, who was it? I think it was, uh, I think it was, Suzanne, was it Sarah Edwards? It was Suzanne, Susanna Wesley. She would, she would put her, a, a veil, her, 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 um, her apron over her head to block everybody out because there was really nowhere else to do it. She had, what, 20 kids. And the kids knew when mom has the apron over her head, you don't bother her. <laughs> she's seeking the Lord. She's with the Lord. She's meditating on Scripture. She's praying. In the same way, folks, we need to determine in our heart we need a space where we go. We need to designate. A, a go, go to Home Depot and buy a cheap old fold-out table and go to, go to Costco and, and go buy one of the, one of the uh, uh, office chairs that's on sale and use it and study and get serious and start pounding on the Word of God until you see wonderful things. But Scripture doesn't cease to amaze me. Last thing. Uh, turn with me to chapter 13. Because I need to be re reminded of this, and you need to keep me accountable to this. That's right. You need to keep me accountable to this. But uh, in chapter 13, um, we are told in verse 22 what Hebrews is all about. We're not doing this. If I'm not doing this, you need to keep me accountable. But I urge you, brethren, watch this. To bear with this word of exhortation. Stop right there. What, for I have written to you briefly. And I just about pulled my hair out when I heard him say, I've written to you briefly. What? You wrote the most complicated letter in the, in the book, buddy. And you're saying I wrote to you briefly. Boy, I'd like to see when you write extensively. The church would really hate the pastor then. 15 chapters, 20 chapters of Hebrews. Anyway. Now, we would love it. It's just glory, glory upon glory, right? The word of exhortation, the word of admonition, the word you can translate, the word of encouragement, right? So how does this encourage us? That's the question. How are we encouraged by the eternal perfection of the Son of God? Number one, we could say that by reminding us of what God requires and of what God supplies in Jesus Christ is what it took for us to be saved. The moral perfection of Jesus is something we can never achieve. The standard is too high. We can never attain it. And precisely what we needed, however, is precisely what God supplied in His Son, Jesus, by living a perfect life, dying a perfect death, and then entering into a perfect state of exaltation. He did this for us. Oh, how does this encourage us? Just know that we are never going to have to bear the weight. We are never going to have to measure up 
to all that God requires because there is an infinite chasm, my friends, between what God demands and what we are able to achieve. But God did it, and he did it for us through Jesus. The second thing, I guess we can encourage ourselves with the, um, with the one-for-all sacrifice, the total sufficient sacrifice of Jesus that we so desperately need. This means that our justification is not a daily struggle. Listen to me, folks. Your justification is not a daily struggle. Every day that you get up and you're sanctified, we are not battling for, for justification. We are not fighting to become justified in the eyes of God, to become acceptable in God's sight. That is wonderful news, is it not? That you don't have to try to show people your spirituality in hopes that God and man will accept you. You don't have to try to earn and pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps when you failed to say, oh, I'm going to double down now on prayer and scripture reading. No, your justification is secure. You are righteous in his sight through Jesus Christ. And maybe the last thing, the last thing is God's oath. How does God's oath encourage us? Well, turn with me to one last place, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Because whenever God makes an oath, you better believe that it is sure. You can bank on it. Oh, you can put all your investment, forget about bonds and stocks, and you can put all your chips on this bet right here. That when God makes an oath, when God makes a promise, he's going to keep it. So Psalm 110 is sort of the seal that all the good things that the pastor is talking about will be given to you because God has promised. It says, as many as are the promises of God, this is 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For as many as are the promises of God, how many promises has God made? I read to you last week from Isaiah 40, right? Or I think it was Isaiah 32, 40, where it says that he will not fail to do us good. That's a promise. God, you said you will not fail to do me good, right? And you can bank on that promise. Why? As it says, in him, that's Christ, they are yes, right? Therefore also, through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Folks, we can trust in the promises of God, and this oath of Melchizedek is central to the forgiveness of our sins, to our moral righteousness, and to our access to God. Let's pray. Father, remind us of that access that we have when we waver, when we're tempted to think we don't have the access, when we're tempted to think I'm overwhelmed with trial, with burden, with affliction, with doubt, with worry, with anxiety, with the flesh, remind us that we have such a high priest that resides over the house of God, Jesus, who was perfectly holy, who did everything that is demanded of us so that the law can be fulfilled in us. Oh, Lord, thank you. Open our eyes to the truth of these issues that we study today and help us, Lord, to apply them to our heart every day as we look and gaze upon the King and His beauty. In Jesus' name, amen.